Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 63 of the Corona Diaries. Go on, H, you can exhale. <sighs> Yay! Hey. Um, how are you this morning? Oh, excellent. Yeah, I'm not hungover. Yeah, no, you look you look fine and, <laughs> you know, on the money. <laughs> like the Queen. Like, like the Queen. Like Same the queen. age. Yeah, indeed. Um, I was just in the, in the... I was just telling you that I... I interviewed Kyle Gass last week, and you then went, who the fuck's (laughs) Kyle Gass? Which is a really fair question. Well, not fair, but... Well, no, I think it's fair. Kyle Gass is the other half of Tenacious D. All right. Which is that Jack Black sort of combo thing-esque. And he's a nutter. He's an absolute nutter. And it it was the weirdest conversation I've ever had. Um, You just switched him on and let him go. There was no... There was no control in him. Right. A hyperactive drug-addled American. Yes. Not that they need drugs, in my experience. No, no. And, he's, and he was full-on LA as well, so he was full-on that, that right. kind of... Yes. Yeehaw, yeah. Yeehaw. Uh, anyway, very quickly, before mm-hmm. we start, a few mm-hmm. bits of housekeeping. Oh. Um, Cliff Lewis, uh, yeah. loads of comments came in about last week's episode. The whole, the whole clothes thing seemed to really work with everybody. The, the, your sartorial elegance. Uh, Cliff Lewis wonders if we can um, we can simplify your fashion phases to pre-flounce, flounce, and post-flounce. <laughs> well, you could, except for the fact there's always a risk that I'll revert to a flounce at any given moment in time. Uh, it's it's never far below the surface. Right. <laughs> there's always a big shirt in the wardrobe I can throw on. You know, There's always any a big given shirt. moment. That's the, that could be the episode title this week. There's always a big shirt. Yes, a return yes. to the natural Lawrence Llewellyn state of affairs. Indeed, um, Jenny, uh, the Jenny I mentioned, my friend Jenny, um, very quickly uh, came back and said it was the porterhouse in Retford, which of course it was. It was. Yeah, I remember dragging a gear up that bloody steep staircase. Yeah. What yeah. was the manager called? Was he Billy or Sammy? Was he Sammy? Ooh, he looked like he'd me. done a bit of porridge anyway, and he was a fearsome character. Yes. He frightened me to death. I was only 17 or something at the time. For what is quite a nice little market town, it was a relatively fearsome venue. It was, yeah. It was a hell of a... It was a good gig. Mm. It was a, you know, a proper rock and roll gig in, a, in, a, in, in like, the last place on earth you'd expect you'd to expect find it. one. Yeah, yeah. We did... Cool. Uh, Europeans did... That I've probably told you this before. We did, we did a we did a little tour, and Annabelle Lamb was supporting us, and, and had a hit with Riders on the Storm on about the third show of the tour, which made her much more famous than us. 
<laughs> and so when we got to the porterhouse in Retford with her, um, there was a big poster on the wall and it just said in huge letters, Annabelle Lamb supports the Europeans in very small <laughs> letters. Um, I've never seen one of those since. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, you could have done with that for your wall, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would have been a good one. <laughs> Great to look back on. Um, there seems to be a groundswell towards purple attire now for the upcoming gigs. So when we do finally get to see you again, there seems to be a real groundswell towards all right. the all the purples donning purple. The audience are going to look like a box of Quality Street. Aren't <laughs> they, they are <laughs> the big the big purple one. <laughs> So that's that's on its way, and 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 Christine has kicked that off, and Christine's got a very sort of commanding manner about her, so it's going to happen. <laughs> a commanding manner, she has. Um, Josephine Josephine Elliott's already been out and bought a purple bag. Oh, there we have it. Um, a couple of bits more, and then we then we'll get on to to stuff proper. Tom agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, now says that he once described this as golden drivel, but he's now thinking that it's educated stupidity. Hmm. No. Well, well, apart from the educated, I'd say that's true. <laughs> Probably. And I'll finish with Justin Beanie. Justin's our friend from Chapel Nap, isn't he? I thought you were going to say Justin Bieber then. I'll no, finish with no. Justin Bieber. <laughs> what a knob. No, um, <laughs> finish with Justin Beebe. And a Bee, Bee, Beanie. Bee, Bee. Oh, great. Phoebe, Bee, McCready. Where was that from? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it sounds like what was that kids' TV program? <laughs> anyway, great use of the word indubitably from Mr. H last week, and so in the vibe of the episode, he came up with a possible rap. And Mr. H was dressed most suitably. Well, he always is indubitably. Well, not bad. Not bad. It was all right. It was Someone all right. also it pointed than... out that, that she preferred cross station in a bus station to um, if he don't, you know, Eddie don't like furniture, he'll return it. So yes, yeah. I, I was quite flattered at having beaten um, beaten Hagley. Yeah, at least yeah. in well, someone's mind. Cross station, bus station is a classic. <laughs> anyway, on to this week. Uh, now we were, as you might recall, we were going to do books this week. But we both took one look at each other this morning and thought that probably wasn't going to happen. Yes. Um, Just so put we, we, war and peace down. Let's, yeah. let's, yeah. We're going to push it back another week for a bit more prep. Uh, prep. <laughs> prep. Um, so what we're going to do this week is we're going to um, do one of those shows where we take a section of the diary and we're going to read that first, then we're going to have questions on it, and then we're going to do another day of the diary and read that because there's quite a lot of questions coming out of the diary sections this week. Mm-hmm. So... Although we've only been running a few minutes, in a moment you're going to get Mr H doing first section of diary, which I believe is Philadelphia. Clear I think we're going to start in Philly. <coughs> yes, the Theatre of Living Arts in Philly. Yes, in that lovely South Street. I, I like it there. And that was second date of the tour, wasn't it? Apparently, yes. That was yes. the date during which, as we talked about last week, there was a crisis meeting to um, energise the set a bit, which it had felt had been a little bit lacklustre. Right, well, we'll get on to that because that's one of the questions because over the next two over the next two readings, over the next two days of diary, we're going to answer all those set list questions that we kind of left hanging a couple of weeks ago. 
So we're going to get to that uh, because we've, there's, there's chunks of information in the diary that's going to help us out. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm now going to shut up because I've done my spiel for the week. And, uh, and we'll go to you then uh, if, you, if you're ready for a bit of diary. <coughs> Clear throat. Here it comes. Wednesday, the first of something, 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 something. Thursday. 3rd of August. Philadelphia, the Theatre of Living Arts. Arrived at the Comfort Inn in Penn's Landing, Philadelphia, around 10 and checked into a day room. Went downstairs and had a spot of breakfast from the buffet with Tim, our tour manager. I was feeling dog-tired and wounded after the first show, always a blow to the system and the sleepless night, so I returned to the day room and tried to sleep for an hour. We were to be picked up at the hotel at 12.30 by Joe Estrada from the record label, who was taking us to lunch with someone from a radio station in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He took us down to a restaurant where we met up with Keith Moyer and his sister Jane. Joe continued to bend my ear about trying to edit Afraid of Sunlight for radio. It's his favourite song. The food was good. I had salmon with a sort of orangey sauce while chatting to Keith. I remember him from before. He has a pet skunk. Apparently they're good pets to have, provided that the musk glands are removed at birth so they don't make the famed terrible smell. He says it's house-trained and you can take it for walks on a lead, down to the pub, etc. It would be an interesting sight down at the Rose and Crown in my village in England. After lunch, I was planning to go shopping again for shower gel. My usual Halston Z14 is almost finished. I bought it in Cologne earlier this year, and although it's murder to get hold of, I was confident of success somewhere in the department stores of Philly. Keith and Jane agreed to accompany me into town and point me in the right direction a decision they probably came to regret, as we ended up walking miles, visiting several stores, Wanamaker's, J.C. Penney's, Strawbridge's, some of which stopped the fragrance, but none of which had the shower gel. This might seem like an awful lot of trouble to go to for shower gel, but I'm very particular about these little things, especially on tour when I feel the need to pamper myself a little to make amends for the damage I do to my body and soul every night. Rituals become very important. I can't explain exactly why, but it's something to do with the loneliness. Happiness is a pair of new Paul Smith pink socks after a shower with the right shower gel and the right talc. Anyway, no one had the shower gel or the talc, so Keith and Jane generously offered to drop me back at the hotel. I think I had worn them out. I invited them to the soundcheck and drove over with them. The Theatre of Living Arts is situated in a good part of Philadelphia, South Street, a street all lit up with fairy lights and full of interesting and unusual shops. I had remembered the hat shop, Hats in the Belfry, opposite the TLA, where you can buy any kind of hat imaginable, from a fireman to Napoleon. 
I never found the time to go inside. Niall loves hats. I once promised him a top hat, and I know he'd wear it, but I don't know where I would find one in his size. He's only four. Maybe I'll have a look when we get to New York. Back at the TLA, sound check was progressing slowly. Upstairs in the dressing room, I discovered John Arneson, who had arrived from England, deep in conversation with the band. Apparently, it's felt that last night's set was too long, too down dynamically and spiritually, and they were discussing possible changes to the set. Well, that was to be expected. You can't really get a feel for things until you hit the road with them. It's a bit late to start changing things for tonight's show, but we decided to remove the hollow man and out of this world tonight and see how it all feels. Returned to the hotel and went to bed for an hour, still tired, and was summoned to go to the show by Tim knocking on my door while I was still in the bath. The show was very well received by the sit-down audience. I had trouble with my guitar, which didn't seem to be working whenever Wes handed it to me. Steve R was having a few problems also. Technical hell always accompanies the first few shows. You just have to grin, pretend all's well and get through it without trashing anything, including yourself, or assaulting the crew. Afterwards, I went out front to sign a few things and chat to the kids who'd hung around. I remember from last time what a bunch of sweethearts they are in Philly. A black guy called Ron stunned me by lamenting the absence of Market Square heroes. Marillion aren't known for being in touch with black culture, and over the course of a world tour, I can count the number of black people in the audience on two hands. So it was amazing to meet such a die-hard fan in Ron. He invited the band to a club called Dobbs that was next door but one, so I dropped my bags on the bus and went and had a quick half with him. Thanks, Ron. Out in the street, I was approached by a guy who works at a centre for abused children. He told me that, according to his experience, Brave was absolutely, quote, right on the money, unquote, in relation to the stories he's told every day. He said he had introduced the record to certain of his patients who had found it to be helpful. He mentioned one particular girl with a history of serious problems who got completely into the album and is now perhaps only coincidentally, but you never know, on the mend. I took an address from him so that I might drop her a line and wish her well. He said that would affect her very positively, so I'll send her a postcard when I get a minute. Maybe it'll be more fun if it comes from England. When I was writing Brave with the boys, it never really occurred to me that it could affect people to quite the extent that it has. I've had a few letters from victims of abuse, and oddly enough and to my relief, they've found the album uplifting. Well, after our drink with Ron, we returned to the hotel to shower, picked up our bags, and climbed aboard the bus to sleep. Tomorrow, Boston. And we're back! For the first time this week, because there's going to be two. Ooh, we're um, back again, and we're back again. Or we, we could, for the second one, we could, we could sort of count people in and they could do it themselves. <laughs> they could. Leave a gap where it should be. Yeah. yeah. Well, might work, might not. Anyway, Philly. <clears throat> no, Steve. 
Philly, no less. I'm going to start with, you were collected by Joe Estrada from the record label. Yes. And you went out for lunch, I believe, with Keith Keith and Jane. Moyer. I remember Keith with the skunk. Mm. And I remember Jane because I've seen Jane quite a few times since then. She travels to uh, conventions and I usually say hello. But I've not seen Keith for years. But apparently he's all right. Right. Well, the, you've, you've touched on what was the second question, so we'll do the second question first. So he was mm. the skunk fella because we mentioned the skunk early on, didn't we? The skunk well, came yeah. up in a episode. The skunk often comes up. <laughs> it's a phrase I didn't expect to hear this morning. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> but he was the guy. He was the skunk walker. The skunk walker. Yes, he had a pet skunk. He right. probably told me the skunk's name, but I never wrote it down. I can't remember it. But I remember feeling slightly jealous at not having a skunk myself mm. to walk down the street to the pub, you know, of an evening. I thought that would give me a certain elan. I think it's the only thing you're missing. And that's not <laughs> to say that Boots isn't a fantastic pet. I think some form of slightly more, you know... Yeah, I could wear the skunk coat whilst I was walking the skunk along. Then we'd match. Ooh, Ooh how would the skunk feel about that? Nervous, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> on the back foot. <laughs> the skunk was on the back foot. <laughs> right. I'll go back to my first question. Oh, yeah. So, Joe, I don't know, was it Joe or Keith? Oh, no, it was Jane, actually, was pushing for Afraid of Sunlight to be a single. Oh, it was Joe Estrada who was bending my ear. Yeah, it right. was it, to you know with his record company hat on to edit "Afraid of Sunlight" into a, a single format. But I don't think we ever worked out how to do it. It was the same right. with "Fantastic Place." Later on, you know, everybody went, "Oh, that's a that's a whopper!" If you can edit it down to three and a half minutes, and we couldn't. There just didn't seem to be a way. So would EMI have been open to a single? Because obviously relations were, you know, weren't good, were they, at this point, and they weren't really didn't do a lot to support the album. So would they have, would they have been open to a second single? Probably not. I mean, there was a the manager director JF Jean Francois Cession, who was kind of thought he was Napoleon. Um, at that point. I think he 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 said to me, you know, Steve, just give me one single, and we gave him beautiful, and and they couldn't really do, you know, they didn't do much with that, um, and so, you know, we made a video for it, and and they put it out, and it didn't really happen, and I think at that point all plugs were probably pulled. So going back to them with a Afraid of Sunlight edit. Might you know might have been a waste of time anyway, but but not that we did, we didn't. But um, who knows? Who knows? I don't think. I mean, Lucy um, always maintains that she was at the table um, with JF and all these other characters um, discussing whether or not to let Robbie Williams go. Because he'd made that solo album, I think he'd put out a single or two, nothing much was happening. And um, 
she always maintains that it was either her or somebody at the table who said, you know, we should release angels. It's, it's a monster, you know, and I don't know why we haven't thought to do it. And, you know, it literally was on a knife edge whether to, whether to drop him and let him go or to have one last shot, at, you know, by releasing angels. And the rest is history. So yeah. you never know how, you know, how, how much luck is involved and how close even these kind of mega artists came to, to being dropped and going nowhere. And now Robbie lives in several different houses in different parts of the world and is sat on a small fortune. Um, could just as easily not have happened for him. He's probably got a number of skunks. <laughs> Yes, I should imagine he has. He's probably got skunk wallpaper and everything. Because <laughs> a single, I'm right in saying this, doesn't it? A single doesn't, certainly at that time, didn't make any money, did it? The single would just would push the album, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would just, it would just push. I mean, if, if radio, as radio did, uh, in the case of Angels, if, if radio decides to play the shit out of something, then the profile of the artist goes through the roof, and yeah. people buy. You know, I don't know what happens these days. I don't. I don't know if people then go out and buy the album, or whether they just add it to their Spotify playlist. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't know what the market's like anymore. Maybe yeah. they go out and buy it on vinyl. Who knows? I don't know. I'm 65, and I've had a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> But by the mid nineties, we, we, I mean, it wasn't that things were selling in millions either, was it? I mean, to get to number one, even at that point in time, it wasn't like you needed to do a couple of million. It was, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the eighties where it was really big, big, big numbers. Yeah, I remember. Um, I think there's still a, re- a gold record on the wall in the toilet at uh, Racket. I think there's a there's a Kaylee gold record, and it was something mad like twenty five million copies. Um, so no, you can't you can't even dream of numbers like that anymore. No, no. right. So, but th- this is the bit that I didn't quite fathom. Then, so he's from the record label, Joe Estrada. Yeah, he was from. He was probably uh, that point. He would either have been an EMI Promotions guy or Capital Records Promotion guy, or he would have been an independent promo guy that had been hired into right. babysit the artist. Right, okay. Hence the reason why, because it just seemed a bit weird, somebody from the record label was talking to you about a sig- a single. You'd have thought those conversations would have gone on internally unless the band had turned around and said, no, there's no way we want to do that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was always very fragmented. So if you were signed in in England, the American label kind of had no influence over those decisions. They were all taken by the A&R people in the, in the country that you'd been signed. So, you, you know, there was a real limit to, to how much you could get going in foreign yeah. parts. It all had to come from London in the first yeah. place because we were, we were signed there. Right, fine. So even if you could have done it, it still probably wouldn't have happened anyway, but it, but it, it was a complete no block because actually you couldn't find a way of cutting it down. No, we'd have probably just had to fade it in the middle yeah. or something. 
you know, but it, it would have been a good advert for the album. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's that one. So um, you then spend the rest of the day because I'm and I need to know now about this. It's come up so many times. Halston Z14. <laughs> yeah, it's just a fragrance that I discovered. I don't know how I discovered it. Um, way way back. Um, and it's American. You, it's quite hard to get. You can barely get hold of it in England. You, I don't think. I don't think you ever could get hold of it in England. Um, you can get hold of it quite easily in the states. You can't get hold of it in France, but you could get hold of it at one point in Holland and Germany. Um, and when I say get hold of it, I mean they. You, you can usually get the eau de Cologne, and. Um, you could sometimes get the aftershave, but they also did a talc and a shower gel, and that was as rare as hell. So because it was so hard to get, I was always trying to find it uh, when I was in America. Um, and that's it. That's all I've got on Z14. I still right. wear it, and right. uh, I still stockpile it. I've got drawers full of it because, you know, you have to stockpile it whenever you can get hold of it. Right. So for something that seems such a pivotal part of your tour kind of experience and, and, and the thing that could make the difference between a good tour and a bad tour and a good show and a bad show. <laughs> Why did you pick something that was rare as rocking or shit? Well, that's just, you know, that's how I am, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I can't be running with the herd. No. No, indeed. I was, uh, I was always the one swimming the other way. Has has the internet made procurement of this any easier, or have you moved on to something easier for tours? You, there are a couple of of uh, internet fragrance companies in America. I don't believe we're talking about this. Um, <laughs> that you can get it through, um, right. but um, it costs quite a lot of money to get it delivered, and then the post office tend to hang on to it and send you a bill for the. Um, the customs right. tax. Um, so it takes ages, ends up costing a fortune. And then on one occasion, DPD came along, deli- tried to deliver it, and I wasn't here, and sent it back to America. Uh, <laughs> so I had to order it again, pay for it all again, and then DPD came and delivered it and and. And when they delivered it, it was all wet and fragrant, as you know. And I said, "This has been broken. Can I open it?" And they went, "Oh, if you open it, we can't take it back." I said, "Well, I won't know if it's broken unless I open it." And they said, "Oh, if you open it, we won't be able to take it back." I said, "Well, you better just take it back then." So they took it back a second time, and I gave up. Right. Okay. But I'm sure they smelt very nice in the van. <laughs> Oh, it smells like backstage at a Meridian gig in here. <laughs> anyway, anyway, on to important matters. So you did put in the diary that, that John Arneson had, had rode into town. Um and um and the and, and you 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 arrived to find the band and John having what was that conversation about the first night's set list and whether it was a little bit dour and a little bit dark, and a little bit too slow. Mm. 
Yeah, it, I mean that that conversation was probably more took the form of why did you let Steve H write the set list? <laughs> to be honest, and how are we going to break it to him that we want to put a load of old ones back in? Um, I think that's probably what I missed before I walked. <laughs> How can you'd we have, present this in an upbeat kind of way? You'd have, you'd have thought that I started the meeting by giving you some shower gel. Yeah, that would have done it. Have that would have done the trick. What have we found for you? Yes. <laughs> talc. You sat this awful. <laughs> Little cloud of talc. Like, oh, <laughs> heaven. <laughs> yes, anything. <laughs> Let's play put... the Fugazi album. Fuck it. <laughs> we could have. They could have, two of them from either side, two of them could have done a puff of talc for you to walk through the door. That would have been brilliant. I could have entered the room like a genie. Yeah, you could have done. <laughs> Three wishes. Get rid of the hollow man. Um, out of this world. <laughs> yeah. So out of this world, it wasn't. Okay, let's get rid of it. Right. Okay, so that so those that you you take two songs out. Actually, I think length was the thing that they were that, that seemed to change on that first night. So I've been back to Setlist FM and looked again, and it was um, just those two things that disappeared. So um, that made the show slightly shorter, and obviously, by default, I guess more upbeat because you're taking two slower numbers out. Yeah, and I think we put Incommunicado, hadn't we, and something else right up at the front to get everybody kind of going. Well, I think I don't think you did. I think this comes in the next section of the diary. I think you did this in Boston, so it does sound like it was a uh, gradual tweaking, right? To get it to get it right. So we'll come back to that on the Boston thing. But as it stands here, discussions are ongoing, um, and we I'd obviously misread the set list. I thought the first two nights were the same, but when you look again, actually they're not the same because two things have been taken out. Mm. Right, which now brings us to Ron. Ron, oh yeah, Ron. Yeah, I, remember, I, I, I don't remember, I can't sort of see his face if I close my eyes. But, um, yeah, Ron, I mean, the sort of Afro-American, um, Afro-American fans are almost, there almost aren't any. I mean, when I joined this band, I remember saying to them, you realise you're the whitest band on earth, you know, musically. <laughs> Um, the, 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 it was, it was almost utterly and completely devoid of any kind of black influences. And, uh, and we've explored a lot of that since, you know, we've, we've explored dub and we've explored gospel and, you know, soul. Um, we've even had our moments of, no, of northern soul, you know, the bat, 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 and bat, and bat, but n- none of that had really happened prior to me turning up. Um, and consequently, we have very, very few black, black or Asian fans. We've got a handful of Asian fans in the sort of Midlands, and it's always great to see them. I always feel like getting down off stage and buying them a drink, which is that racist or anti-racist? I don't know what it is, but it's just because traditionally our audiences have been so white that when we see some dark skin in the crowd, you know, it's it, it it's really, really cool, you know, and gives me a little gives me a little boost. I end up singing half of the show to them. Because mm. I know what it's like to be the only white face in a in a an audience of you know that's predominantly black as well down at down at Brixton Academy. 
Um, and it does make it just a little bit, you know, you feel a bit self-conscious. Um, and so, I, I, you know, my heart always goes out to minorities, you know, wherever they are or whoever they are or however they're defined. Mm. Well, good for Ron. And if Ron is listening... Um, uh, yeah, hello, Ron. It's been a long time. I hope you're all right, mate. And get in touch. Get in touch. Go on the yes. guest book. Drop us a note. Come say hello. We'd love to hear from you if you are listening. Um, and at the same time, you then also um, meet a guy in the street who who tells you how spot on you were with, with Brave, this guy who was working with uh, a lot of troubled kids. Yeah, that that that's always a great relief. You know, when when I go spouting off or 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 um, I mean, it's not spouting off. I guess it's just empathising, really. Um, when I empathise with with people who've endured certain things, without having really endured them myself, I, I, I always feel. You know, I, 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 I always agonise over whether I've got the right to have said it and who am I to address that. It was the same with, you know, when we wrote Gaza. And so when you meet someone who comes to you and, and, and says, do you know what, you got that right and it's been really helpful to a lot of people, it's such a relief. Um, so, yeah, it was, was, was a real... Um, a real relief and sort of stops you beating yourself up. Mm. And lastly on that section, told you it was a dense section, um, you'd also been having the early tour teething troubles. <laughs> yes, um, as opposed to the mid-tour teething troubles and the late-tour teething troubles. I was trying to avoid that particular... <laughs> um, <laughs> was it... Was it you, you've said in the past that um, you don't take it quite as seriously now, and you're more chilled now than you were. Mm. And you did, you did. There's a little note in the text saying you just have to be careful, a, not to let it ruin the show, but b, not to to then just go off on one at the crew. Yeah, well, sometimes if things go wrong, it's because the crew have been a bit shoddy. Um, you know, if they're hungover or something, <laughs> which they often are. Um, and sometimes it's just things they they couldn't have anticipated. And having played the Theatre of Living Arts a few more times since then, I do remember, I did see a pattern emerging where every time we played the TLA, we had all kinds of hell. And I think there's something up with the mains in that place. I think it dips. I think, uh, I think, they are, I mean, you've only got 110 in America to start yeah. with and it's then transformed up to 240 for our, for our back line. But I think the TLA's got dodgy mains because every single time we've played there, weird things have happened. Either the samplers have crashed or the guitar back line's gone down or we've had radio interference. So it's either the mains or or there's some kind of monster radio transmitter next door that <laughs> takes everything out, you know, you get getting radio white out and all the bloody guitars vanish. So I think it's the gig, to be yeah. honest. Certainly not not the um, not, no one's to blame. Right. 
that that just about wraps up Philly then. Um, but yeah, yeah, really, really sort of a lot, a lot in that that particular days with a diary. So we'll move on to Boston. Start starting with the journey on that road <laughs> that I'll ask you about when we when we come back. Um, so I'll let you take us. I'll let you take us to Boston. Okay, let's go to Boston, everyone. Lobster pip, lobster pip, lobster pip. Friday, fourth of August, Boston Paradise Theatre. The road from Philly to Boston should be world famous. It's not as smooth as Sarajevo High Street. We all lay in our bunks in the dark, bouncing into the air as the driver negotiated pothole after ramp after pothole. I was reminded of my long journey bumping along the infamous Berlin Corridor with a badly sprained ankle back in 1989 before the wall came down. I thought there wasn't a road in the Western world worse than that one, Wrong. Sleep was impossible, but I was still too tired to allay my curiosity and get up and have a look at what kind of road could produce this effect on a tour bus. Finally arrived in Boston at a Howard Johnson by the river at around 9am. Had breakfast with the boys and then went to bed for the day, rising around 4.30 to shower and to go to sound check. When we arrived at the Paradise, it was raining quite heavily. This is the first rain I've seen either side of the Atlantic and the cluster of Bostonians already outside the gig blamed the bad weather on our English influence. Inside they weren't even into the drums yet so I decided to wait on the bus and write my diary a little. Chatted to the people in the street for a while. Someone had flown from LA to see the show and was flying back in the morning. Sat on the bus talking to Alan Parker about the light show in Europe and tapping away at my grey box until Tim came to let me know they were ready for me. There was a moment of panic when we thought we'd lost the ignition key for the bus. It also opens the loading bay doors, so Wes couldn't get at his stage clothes. He thought he'd have to go on in his dirty working clothes, and we all thought we wouldn't be able to go to Toronto. I made up a little tune about it and was singing it into the mic during soundcheck when Priv announced that he had the bus key. Crisis over, meet the next crisis. Stuart, still without passport, is unable to go to Canada. He's going to take the train to New Haven tomorrow, have the weekend off and wait till we arrive on Monday. Grant and Roger, without work permits, can't ride the bus with us or they'll be rumbled at the border. So we're having to fly them in and out. Oh well. There wasn't time to return to the hotel between soundcheck and show, but I'd anticipated that and I felt well rested after spending the day in bed. Had a listen to Wes's set. He's singing very well. His pitching's better than the last tour in Europe. Better than mine, I think. Maybe I can pop something in his drink. As for our set, well, what a crowd. The band played well, with the notable exception of the end of Hard As Love, which sort of fell to bits after Steve got lost, Pete got confused, and I gave up. 
All the equipment worked for the first time so far. We changed the set again to make it tougher for these American clubs, opening the set with Incommunicado and Hooks in You. It seemed to do the trick. I start the show at a higher energy level, which generally helps the intensity of my performance for the rest of the show. It gives the crowd a couple of oldies to begin with, so they're with us from the top of the set. The Boston crowd have always been great in the past, but tonight they were absolutely terrific, mouthing through all the words and at the same time totally engrossed in what the band and I were doing. I'd have bought them all a drink if I could have. I was really on form, feeling much more alive and adjusted to my surroundings than of late. After the show, I went back out into the club to sign stuff for the warm and enthusiastic Bostonians. At one point, I was approached with a knowing wink by a kid who looked like Matt Johnson. He flashed the blade of a hunting knife at me and said, I don't have anything to sign, but you can sign this if you like. I declined. We later returned to the hotel to shower before climbing on the bus to sleep our way to Canada. So we're going to give you a countdown from three and then you can put in the and we're back. Just a little moment of audience participation. So three, two, one... Oh, well done. That was beautiful. Yes. I love that. I'm loving your work. Lovely. Right. Right. Boston, then. <laughs> Boston, Boston, then. Yeah. Boston, then. Yeah. And that road from Philly to Boston. Yes. Do you know, I'd forgotten that as well. Um, it was obviously dreadful. The, the, the thing about America is because it's, it's what it is, you know, and there's all these different states, I think every now and again you get, you get a road that that whatever you know, whichever administrative body uh, is in charge of maintaining it, either either can't afford to because they've run out of money, or the president's done something. You know, because the president does stuff, doesn't he, in America every now and again, and then nobody gets paid, and you get all of that business going on, all of that madness that was going on when Trump was in. Um, I don't think it's the president, but they, the, the, the houses have to agree the budget, don't they? And if they don't agree the budget, then government effectively shuts down until the budget is passed. And I think that has to be done it. every year. That's it. I stand corrected. That's exactly it. Um, whether that was responsible for the shit road <laughs> from Philly to Boston, I don't know. But um, if, you're, if your only chance of sleep is on a moving vehicle over a road like that, you're basically stuffed because you're, you're, you're literally bouncing into the air and your nose is hitting the, 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 the bunk above you. Um, and that was the case. And as I said in the diary piece, I didn't think there was a worse road than that corridor to Berlin, uh, but we managed to find it. And the, the roads in Manhattan used to be absolutely dreadful in the nineties. Um, I think they've sorted them out now, but they were they were in a total state as well, um, as indeed are the roads in Montreal. I think a lot of America suffers such extremes of heat and cold, yeah, that um, there just isn't a road surface that can withstand it, and the 
you know, the freezing cold winters, followed by their baking hot summers, just mm. trashes the road surfaces. Unless they're constantly replacing them, they're, they're pretty grim. But that wasn't a humdinger that night, and I don't think anybody got any sleep. Right. And how 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 big is your little, on the tour bus, mm. how, how far from bed to ceiling? Um. I'd say, right. I'd say about, what's that? About arm's length. In arm's fact, length. In fact, if, no, less than arm's length because if you're lying down and you reach up, you can't straighten your arm. So maybe arms, maybe maybe from shoulder to wrist. Right. Um, so you haven't got a lot of room. Um, Phil Brown's wife, Josie, famously got on the tour bus once in London just to have a look and went upstairs and went, oh, they're like little coffins, aren't they? Uh, w- which which made us feel good on the, on the journey. <laughs> <laughs> Complete with the little curtains you get at cremations as yeah. well. So <laughs> I've not been able to look at a tour, tour bus bunk since without thinking of imminent death. <laughs> If somebody played Frank Sinatra my way, you'd probably assume that was it. You'd probably just thought, oh, grief. Thought I was on the tour bus, I'm about to be created. Yeah, well, you know, there are there are worse ways and worse places to die. Right. Little coffins, I like that. Um, anyway, so you you have this night of... Of, did you say in the diary you got up to have a look as well? Or did you? That's the bit I couldn't quite make out. Did you get up to have a, a scan about? I can't remember whether I was just kind of thinking of getting up to have a look but never actually being able to summon the physical strength to do it. Right. As uh, is, you know, is often the case when I'm in bed. I think, oh, I might as well get up. I just can't summon the physical strength to do it. So you get to Boston, mm. lobster bib, lobster bib, and um, and at which point somebody announces that they've lost the key for the tour bus mm. or the ability to get in the tour bus. Yeah, there was only one key and somebody had lost it. No one, of course, was admitting that they'd lost it. So there was quite a lot of uh, controversy because you can't open the, ba- the bus bays where your suitcases are without the key. Um and in the case of that particular American tour bus, you couldn't turn the ignition either. <laughs> so not only could um, the opening act not access his stage clothes, but uh, there was every chance that we weren't going to be able to leave Boston at the end of the night. But uh, it was it was resolved in the end because Privet, our sound man, had ended up with it in his jeans somehow. He was probably yeah. just a bit distracted. Is is that normal to have one key for a tour? I mean, something so fundamental. No, it sounds absurd, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it was the 90s. It was America. Right. You know, um, they probably don't have keys now. They no. probably have some kind of proximity device, you know, that yeah. put, put in the driver's fillings or something. Bill Gates will have had a hand in it. (laughs) 
now, we, now we've all been vaccinated, we wander past your tour bus and open the door. <laughs> that used to happen in Holland. Um, in Amsterdam, the, the, the tour bus usually got, got, you know, raided, robbed, basically. And things would go missing, dodgy dodgy characters would break in. and They used physical force, of course. They didn't mm. use their fillings or, or anything. And finally, and and finally, because then we can really start to put this to bed once and for all mm-hmm. in terms of the set list. Um, the set list gets changed again. And, and the reason why this is important is if you can recall back when we looked at the set list for the first part of the tour, the Boston set list wasn't there. So we didn't mm. know. We surmised that maybe everything changed at New Haven because you had a break in between dates and there would have been time to have have actually you know planned it and, and done it and done any reprogramming but it seems like that's not the case and actually things were changed again in Boston which probably meant that was the fi- one of the final change so incommunicado and hooks in you both got added at this point mm-hmm. 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 well so now we you know kudos to Mark Kelly who after a sleepless night over those dodgy roads uh probably um you know, I had to get up and and spend two hours reprogramming the, the rig. So um, that can't have been been pleasant. No. I think that was before he really got into his running. These days he would have just gone running and uh, it wouldn't have got done. Right. And th- so something, you know, as simple as making a decision to say, right, I mean, there's obviously there's two factors there, isn't there? One, one um, if you throw in songs in, do you need to rehearse them or are, you, are there certain things that you could just chuck in at a drop of a hat? Um, and secondly then, what else needs doing in terms of keyboard prep and, and any assorted samples or things you would need? It was um, a bit more complicated in those days with the keyboard rig. Everything was seemed to take ages. Um, these days you can... It's a lot quicker and easier you know, because the technology's come on quite a bit. Back then, the technology Mark was using was made up in sheds by university students and <laughs> you couldn't buy it in the world because it didn't <laughs> exist. And uh, so it was always chock full of bugs and God knows what and uh, it used to be murderous to operate and to live with. Um, these days, there's a thing called main stage. Um, which um, Mark went over to. And everything's been a bit more straightforward since. Uh, Regarding actually just pulling songs out of a hat, um, Hooks in You and Incommunicado were both pretty basic, you know, musically. Um, There's there's not a... um, there's not a whole heap of, of, of chords to learn with those two. The only thing you've got to worry about is asking Ian not to play in Communicado too fast because then you can't fit the bloody words in. Um, you know, if he used to get carried away, then I couldn't get them in. You know, I'm a rootin' tootin' cowboy, a Peter Pan with street credibility and all that nonsense. Um, I just couldn't fit them in. Um, so, so I used to get, I used to end up singing them a couple of beats late just to just to fit them all in. 
And then if it got too fast, I'd just go, booming finger just by way of protest. And I've been known to do that on the odd occasion. Regressing to a three-year-old. Actually, there is one more question. By the end of the gig, you were actually feeling more positive, you said, about everything. And you were sort of getting into the swing of the tour. And then somebody appears looking a little bit like Matt Johnson... Um, um, which is Matt Johnson's um, the there, isn't he? The the yeah. yeah. Um, and then he flashed a hunting knife at you and and wondered if you might autograph that. I've never been asked to sign a weapon before or since, um, but I did decline. I don't. I don't think I feel comfortable sticking my moniker on <laughs> on a gun on a gun or a big knife. Only in America. Mm. Only in America. Right, well, that's it for 63. Um, I hope you enjoyed a deeper dive into a couple of the dates at the beginning of the AOS tour. And we're going to toddle off and, and record a, a Q&A for the, um, for the patrons. It's that time of the month. All righty. Blimey. Is it that time of the month already? It's that time of the month already. I know. I know. Where does the time go? Not a lot of new base this week But thank you, James Warren And Leighton Pritchard Ain't it good to be purple? Ain't it good to be purple? Thanks for subscribing, everyone. It's the thought that counts, but hard cash. Keeps me in lobsters and tequila and the occasional gin and tonic. See you next week. Except that I won't. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.